Welcome back to another edition of Real Talk with Real People. I am your host, Dr. Caroline Bethia Jones, and I have a special guest in my studio today, and it's Alvin Jones Sr. You guys know who Alvin Jones Sr. is, and I am happy to have him uh, sit next to me today. Hi, Alvin. What's up, folks? How you doing? The brother AJ on the set in full effect. We're going to take this thing to a new level and make it pop. Yeah, we're going to talk about a whole lot of stuff. And you know, when I have Alvin Jones Jr. Senior, excuse me, sitting next to me, ain't no telling what we're going to get. So what are we going to get today, honey? Well, we're going to hijack the show. Normally, you get to sit in the host chair and control the flow. Well, today, I'm going to take over because uh, it's your show. But today, it's my show. I'm going to interview you. Really? So are you ready? <laughs> I'm always ready. But when you hijack my show, you're going to give it back to me, right? Absolutely. <laughs> when we're done. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Okay, what you got? So first off, uh, it's uh, great to see you on this podcast journey. It's a new medium, a nice way to speak to uh, the listeners out there. We're so used to the visual medium. Uh, we grew up on radio, so it's a great medium that will never fade away because there are going to be times when there will be no imagery and uh, uh, audio is the only way that we'll be able to hear it. Yeah. So my first question to you is uh, why podcasting? What drove you into the podcast arena? Well, you know, I always loved the audio audio part of it you know that I mean I guess it probably came with us recording downstairs doing all those recordings behind the scenes stuff but podcasting though of course um I got introduced to podcasting early and I started listening to it but my favorite podcaster is Karen Hunter and when I started listening to Karen Hunter that is when I really knew in my heart that that's what I want to do because what is Karen doing? She is bringing information to the people. And I always am bringing information to the people and I didn't really have a medium to really bring information to the people unless I actually had a workshop or a Bible study or something that I was doing when I was inviting people in. But now I see with technology, I don't have to do all that. I can just have my little podcast and I can invite people in and we can have conversations and I can share information. So that's why I really want to do this now. And how's it going and how are you enjoying it? Well, first of all, I'm enjoying it very much because what I'm realizing that is not even just the podcasting that I was able to do. I now started my online Bible study class. So now that's online and all of my instructions I'm doing through the same medium in which I'm doing podcasting. So I'm actually loving it. This is, I feel like where I need to be right here. I feel that way. So I'm a firm believer in order to move forward. We need to go back. We have to go back into the past. Uh, you didn't just pop up on the scene and show up. So we need to take the listeners on that uh, journey. So I have inside information, folks. So y'all got to bear with me. Uh, you are one of 12. <laughs> I am the number six child of 12 children by John and Nora Buffet. Yes, sir. And amazingly, her parents are still together. I give John all the credit in the world because I'd have killed one of them children. <laughs> I definitely got rid of Mom Dukes. You know what I'm saying? No. Well, how no, many no, years no. are they celebrating currently? My mom and dad um, just celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary. And I know your dad just turned 90. And my dad just turned 90 in August. Yes, right. he did. Still GQ as hell. I wish y'all knew the man. He's all that. Okay. <laughs> my but mom, 85. Mama is the strength of the family. She bore 12 children on this planet. Okay. Uh, eight boys and four girls. That's so correct. That, that's a hell of a dynamic mix. And so falling uh, almost right smack in the middle of that mix. Right smack in the middle. Uh Describe a little bit of your upbringing. Uh, what was the world like through Caroline's eyes growing up in that position? Because oh. you had your older kids who were dominating you. Then you had your younger brothers uh, underneath you, brothers and sisters underneath you, who you become responsible for. So what was that like being in that number six hole, talking to a middle child who only had to deal with one above and one below? You know, middle children, uh, we, we get it. Although, if you talk to my sister Sharon, she would claim that spot. She would say that she is the middle child. But I'm going to claim that spot because I'm going to say that I am the middle child because I am the sixth 
one out of 12. So I'm going to claim the middle spot. But um, growing up with, with 12 kids, people say, how do you grow up with 12 kids? You didn't really grow up with 12 siblings all at one time because right, all right. 12 of us were not in the same house all at the same time. Right. But clearly there was... Um, at least six of us there at one time, and it could quite possibly have been eight of us there at one time. But I, I don't know. I, I didn't really think of my childhood that much because there was so much of us, and because when you have so many kids, sometimes you kind of get lost in the mix. So I feel like I got lost in the mix. I don't really feel like I had a voice. I really didn't have a voice until I was way into my adulthood, so I kind of did whatever anybody told me to do and stayed in the background. Who was the dominant child during that time? Well, obviously, that was the oldest one. My brother, Johnny Jr., Mitchell, however he wants to be called today. We called him Jr. because he's Mitchell Jr. So, of course, that's what I know him as. But I think he goes by Mitchell right now. He was the dominating one. Him along with my sister Penny, though, because the two of them were a tag team. They worked together. Okay. And who was the the uh, one that everyone had to look out for during that time? Um, I don't know. Well, because during that time, Nita was the baby, but she was a tough little cookie. So it's not like you had to look after Nita because she was really, really the tough one. Um, between Sharon and Jimmy, they were the quiet ones, I think. So I think that if I had to say who are my two siblings during that time that I think you really would have to look after or look out for, I would say probably Sharon, maybe Jimmy. Paul was pretty quiet too, but I think Paul could hold it all. And specifically on yourself, what, how would you describe yourself uh, as a child at that time uh, while you were trying to find your way? Give us a description of, uh, of Caroline back in that era. Well, I'm certainly not the person that I am right now. I was extremely quiet, very shy. I won't even say laid back because I don't even know if I knew how to be laid back. I think I was just always frightened of things. I lived a very scary life because I thought everything was like the world was bad and people were going to come and get you all the time. Plus, um, I started out very, very early going into the religion thing because my mother had me very religious at a very, very early age. So, of course, I lived my life thinking that the world was going to end any moment. <laughs> so that should have, you know, could have shaped the way I felt about things. But I was very quiet. I did what I was told. I was very compliant. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't have to tell me to do things more than once because one of the things I learned early on in life is um, choices and consequences and punishment. You got in trouble when you did what you wasn't supposed to do, and I never wanted to get in trouble. So I always tried to stay compliant all the time because I didn't like being in trouble, and I think I carried that even through childhood all the way into young adulthood, even when I, by the time I met you, I was still in that frame of mind where we're going to do what's right all the time. We're never going to do not what is right. And, of course, you know, with you being the bad boy himself, that was kind of difficult. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> going to work for me, absolutely. And uh, I also know, uh, I think one of the things that shaped you is uh, you uh, raised your last brother. Uh, the last child in the household is Michael. Yes. And uh, you, in turn, became almost like Michael's caretaker to the point where he viewed you as his mother figure. That is absolutely true. And that kind of happened by accident. It's not like my mother said, here, you're going to take care of this child. It wasn't like that. Mommy was doing what mommy always do. She was taking care of her kids the way she always do. But it was after she had Michael, she went back to work to try to help my father bring some money into the house. Because, you know, 12 kids is costly. It costs money to raise 12 kids. So she went back to work. And what was happening is a a mix of things. We had moved from, we had lost our house in Teaneck. And so we had to live in Hackensack. The city of which I was born and our children were born. (laughs) The great city of Hackensack, by the way, although she may not view it that way. Well, I grew up in Teaneck. I grew up in Teaneck. The bougiest town in Bergen (laughs) County. I grew Shout up in Teaneck. Teaneck was the only thing I knew. So moving to Hackensack at 14 years old was uh, kind of tricky because I didn't know anybody. And that's a very, very fragile age when you're going into high school. You're going into high school, you don't have no girlfriends. You don't have no friends. You don't have nobody standing up for you. You don't have nobody protecting you. It was a scary thing for me to leave junior high school in Teaneck 
and be thrown into Hackensack High School. So I had a lot of stuff going on in my mind, a lot of things heavy on my head for a 14-year-old. And then on top of that, my mother went back to work, and my baby brother, who was just really born not that long ago, so he was like six, seven, eight months old, and my mother left him with the neighbor so that she can go to work. And every day when I came home from school, I would go pick him up from the neighbor. And the truth of the matter is, I didn't like what I saw. I saw my brother, my baby brother, my precious baby brother, sitting in a corner, diaper full all the time, crying from the top of his lungs. And you, people say, well, that happens when, you, when you're babysitting, but this doesn't happen. It's not an everyday thing. And every day for probably six months, this is what I encountered. And it was like I just couldn't bear it. So I said to my mother, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm not feeling school right now. I'm not feeling school. And by that time, it was already at a time where, now we moved there when I was 14, but I was turning 15. So when I turned, so we, about a year had went by or so. So when I turned 16, you know, when you turn 16, you can drop out of school with your parents' permission. So I asked my mom, if you let me drop out of school and I go to school at night to get my GED, I can take care of Michael. And my mother agreed. She said that was okay because she felt like, okay, at least Michael will be taken care of. So that's basically what I did. I dropped out of Hackensack High School. I enrolled myself into the Adult Learning Center. At that time, it was on Main Street in Hackensack, and it was part of the Bergen Community College um, um, Adult Learning Center. So I enrolled there. I took some classes and um, took care of Michael during the day. When Mommy came home, I gave mommy michael and i went to school and that's what ended up happening okay and i think that right there speaks volumes because i think that's a part of uh, i like to say we're dna stamped and that's a part of the dna that was stamped within you so we're going to fast forward and, and move up to the time of having your own children uh, uh especially our number one daughter that would be <laughs> miss kiana monique jones and when she came along, uh, now the, the things you learn taking care of your own brother, the things you learn from being in a family so large and having that many kids and, you know, the cousins, the aunts, the uncles and, and all that family structure. Now here you are uh, starting to deal with your own child. And uh, what kind of uh, things did you pour into Kiana when she was born? Well, that is true what you just said, because by that time there was a whole lot of nieces, nephews and all that this stuff. But... There is something very different about having your own child. And I, I was ready um, to have her. And, but Kiana was a, a crying baby when I first had her. And I didn't understand why she cried so much. She cried so much no matter how I held her, no matter uh, where I put her. She just cried, 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 cried all the time. And I was a little nervous as to why she was in such a discomfort, and I wasn't able to comfort her. As you know, husband, Kiana had asthma very early on as a child, and, and most Just of her- Just like her daddy. Yes, most of her discomfort came from asthma. But once we, my mother used to watch her. Mommy, see, we turned this thing around. So now mommy's taking- yes, the script. We flipped the script here. So now mommy <laughs> is taking care of Kiana for me while I go to work. And I remember mommy used to say to me, there's something wrong with this child. She keeps, she doesn't breathe all the time. And I'd be like, mommy, of course she breathing. If she didn't, if she wasn't breathing, she'd be dead. <laughs> you know? And I would try to assure mommy, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. But then I remember this one, one day I was at work and I wasn't that far away from work. You could get to my job in 10 minutes from where she was. And Kiana had stopped breathing. Just like mommy says, she called, she had the sense of mind to um, take her to her doctor, which was up the street. And they got me off the job. They called me and I got there. And that's when we discovered that Kiana had asthma. And then once we realized what was happening to her, then it was easy breezy. Because once she was taken care of the way she was supposed to be taken care of as far as health-wise, she was the perfect little angel. And it made having her and taking care of her a breeze at that point. And she was just this beautiful little chocolate drop. And then five years later, a terror was born. <laughs> uh, his name would be Junior. That would be Alvin Lewis Jones Jr. And uh, my recollection of him was that was a busy little young man. <laughs> so uh, yeah. tell me through your eyes a little bit of uh, that. Well, you know, after having a, a daughter who wasn't 
as active and she was very, very girl-like and shy and the way little girls are, the cutest little thing. Then I have this little boy who, I, I must tell you, um, bringing AJ into the world was a challenge, so I'm not going to forget that part because I, I had some stuff going on within my own body and, and so uh, I had a very difficult pregnancy with him. I mean, I was in labor with him for like 14, 15 hours until finally they had to induce him. So already from the very start, he was a child that gave me issues, not by his own means, but hey, it happens that way. But you're right, he was the most active little child. I, I mean, even more so than Michael. I mean, this boy ran around everywhere. He definitely, definitely gave me a run for the money. I learned how to be a better mother taking care of AJ, that's for sure, because he was a ball of fire, full of energy, as you know. Uh, and then, of course, I was in the picture, and, and you met me, and uh, I had that larger-than-life persona. I uh, started out, <laughs> yes, thank you, uh, over here breaking my arm, patting my own back. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, I actually, you know, people that see me now kind of don't believe me, but I, I actually was very laid back, real chilled out. Like, you know, like I, I really was a, I was an introspective, you know, outgoing, very personable, but I was always very introspective. But I always had that larger than life personality. You couldn't tell me that I was not a star to the point I remember when we met, you you brought me uh, quite a few things with stars on them, like a star stick pin. I had yes. a star chain. I was looking for those Bootsy star glasses because I yes. was all in on being a star, y'all. Yes. And when, when we first when we first met, a, f a very funny story. Can I tell a funny story about how we first met? Uh, absolutely. I, okay. You know, see if I remember. Okay. So here is how we first met. And I'm going to give my sister Sharon credit for this because she won't let us live it down. To this very day, Sharon tells everybody. They only together because I introduced them. So I got to tell the story to give Sharon her, her props and her credit. Sharon and you were working at the residence. Residence, okay. I, what is that? An, uh, old, nursing home a for nursing old home. women. Love okay. that place. The okay. Women, I love those women there. Okay, so you were obviously a character even then, because Sharon would come home every day and she would say, "There is this guy that I work with, and I'm telling you, you have to meet him. You have to meet him, Curling, because that's what she called me, Curling. 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 That's another thing. Curling. We'll talk about that later. You have to meet him. You have to meet him. And I kept saying, no, uh-uh, I'm not trying to meet nobody that you're trying to introduce me to, especially if he's working with you at the residence. Now, I wasn't saying that I'm bougie, which is what he liked to say. Teenage. He liked to say I was bougie. But, you know, I had high hopes and high expectations for myself. I was looking for somebody with a little bit more money. Anyway, so... Bougie. <laughs> yeah, no. But anyway, so one day I said, oh, let me just go. So I went to the job, right? And um, I'm in my car. That ugly yellow falcon. It was, what did you have? Uh, left and right. Okay. Size 12. They was getting the job okay. done. See, I had an ugly yellow falcon. He had sneakers. <laughs> okay. And rollerblades. I had a bike. Exactly. I was balling. So, okay. Okay. So anyway, um, so I get to Sharon's job and she comes outside and she's like, oh, he's inside. He's inside. I'm like, well, tell him to come out so I can meet him. So she goes in and she tells him to come out, but he does not come out. Instead, he stays behind the door. I can see him in the glass. He won't come out. And he's like waving all frantically at me like, okay, and, and, and all cheesy and, and waving. So I said to Sharon, okay, he don't have enough respect to come out and see me? Then no, thank you. And she was like, oh, come on. No, really, he's nice. And I'm like, no, thank you. And that was the end of that. That was the end of the whole I'm not meeting him. Fast forward. All right, but let's back up. <laughs> y'all, if y'all would have seen this little yellow falcon, this car, my first car was a hoopty. So I'm going to give it a little bit more props than my first car. I had a 1968 Rambler Ambassador Classic, mm. and I got that in 81. And uh, her Falcon, you know, it was hers, but when I saw that car and I saw this little thing, she wasn't about five foot two, <laughs> didn't even weigh like 100 pounds. I'm like, look at this anorexic chick out here. <laughs> You know, she had her hair weighed more than her, the rest of her. I was like, I, right, you know, so I, I really wasn't trying to hear it, wasn't trying to feel it. You know, Sharon was a, a fun personality. And I'm looking at this one here. She looked all serious. I was like, nah, this ain't going to happen. All right, keep it moving. Yeah, that's about how it happened. 
that really is about how it happened. So both of us have decided this, this, you know what? We are two opposites. We is not getting together. But we're going to fast forward. How many months later? I have no idea. Some months later, and I don't know how many months later, but Sharon and myself and another girlfriend, Florence, we were part of this little singing group, and um, we were called the Angels, and we were under another, er, another girl band, and they took us in as their protégés, and they were going to shape us into being this uh, cute little um, three-girl band, I guess you would call it like TLC or... or Whatever. A girl group. A girl group, whatever. So we got together with, um, with um, these two individuals. I had a manager. We all had managers. And we were looking for musicians to come in and, um, and play for us. And one of the musicians that, I don't know who got them, but um, was the drummer. And I looked over and I saw that it was one and only Mr. Alvin Jones. It was me, y'all. Right. So I'm like, isn't that the guy you tried to introduce me to? And Sharon's like, yes, that's him. That's him. And I was like, mm-hmm. I had just got my drums in like 79. The drums were so old. I like to say that Ringo played on them drums. They were so old. Um, my uncle worked at the water company. And this guy had met this woman. And they were going to get married. And the woman gave him an ultimatum. She said, it's either the drums or me. They lived in these apartments in Palisades Park. Uh, that's a good man, because I would have said, see ya. <laughs> and uh, my uncle asked me, I lived with my aunt and uncle on Park Street in the attic, and he asked me, uh, was I still interested in drums? I said yes, and uh, he took me to look at them. Uh, $60 is what the whole kit cost me. Two rack toms, a kick drum, and a floor tom, okay? And uh, when I went to Sam Mash on Route 4 to get my cymbals, I got a set of hi-hats. My hi-hat cost me $120. My two hi-hats, which I still play to this day, cost more than the whole damn kit. Wow. So I was on my way to be a world-class drummer, and that's how I ended up with them. <laughs> well, you st- that was that little blue set? You brought that with you? Or? No, I think they had a set. I was going to say, they had a set of drums, I played on the right? big set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. They had a set of drums. So that's my second encounter with um alvin but um it did it didn't really go anywhere we were um just kind of he was in the band we were singers and that's as far as it went don't be with the people you work with (laughs) right so but i don't know what happened one day um i was um we were in the kitchen waiting for the older group to get themselves together, and you guys were, were playing for the older group because we, had, we hadn't yet started singing. We were just doing our rehearsals, training our voice and that stuff. But then I saw you over there drumming, and um, I started saying to myself, because, you know, I didn't know I had a thing for drummers, but I think I had a thing for drummers because drumming, drums were like my favorite instrument in the band. I guess they're probably everybody's favorite instrument. All the girls want to go home with the drummer, y'all. I think so. (laughs) I think so. So I looked over there and I saw you drumming. And I saw how serious you were about your drumming. And it was in that, I don't know what happened. It was like in that moment, I suddenly was interested in you. But... Ladies and gentlemen, he still wasn't interested in me. That's right. Okay. You you need to understand that part. I had to do some work after I dissed him in the first place. So you just can't be coming back trying to reclaim something that you said you didn't want. So, of course, now I had to do some work. So now what did I do? I started flirting with him. He wasn't really paying me no attention. Nope. (laughs) I was flirting still, but he wasn't paying no, no attention at all. So one day we were, Sharon and I was at, I think it was called Geno's. On, it wasn't McDonald's. McDonald's is on oh, Main Street right now. Street, yeah. yeah. Roy Rogers? Roy Rogers. Okay, it was called Roy Rogers. Me and Sharon were sitting in Roy Rogers, and we were having our lunch. And we saw Alvin walking down up Essex Street, going up Essex Street. My camera bag on yeah, my side. Yeah, he had his camera bag. Hiking like I always did. Yeah, he was always walking. I told you, he didn't have no car. It was in shape, y'all. <laughs> so Sharon goes, Dickle Alvin, Dickle Alvin. So... I was like, really, really? So I ran outside and I ran across the street because he was on the other side of the street. Almost got killed crossing yeah. <laughs> four lanes of traffic like a crazy woman. So I ran across the street and, you know, I, I, I run up to him now. He's like shocked to see me because he's like now thinking probably I was a crazy woman. 
probably thinking stalker who's, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> who's, who's this crazy girl now so um i'm like you know how you doing you're like i'm fine because he always had he always gave me one answer not like today where he likes to talk through everything now before it was like how you doing i'm good uh where you going um to the store you know, there was like no conversation. I was chilled, laid No back. conversation going on. Just, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to work a little harder than this. So he goes, here's where I get my out. He goes, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to the flea market later with my mom. And he said, flea market? I haven't been to a flea market in, I don't know, a long time. So I said, oh, really? You, you like flea markets? He goes, I, I went to a couple, but I haven't gone in a long time. I said, well... Um, would you like for me to get you something from the flea market? And, you know, he didn't know what to say. I mean, who's this crazy woman who I hardly know asking me if I want her to get me something from the flea market? So I think he was just trying to be nice. And he goes, uh, well, I like stars. And I'm like, stars? Like stars in the sky? He's like, well, yeah, I, sure I, I like stars. And I'm like, okay. And now I'm thinking like, okay. He's like, so if you see a nice star... You can pick that up for me. And I don't know if he said that. Maybe he said that thinking, she ain't going to see no star. I'm just going to tell her this. But what he learned very early on about Caroline Bethay at the time, that's who I was. Actually, I was Karen. Well, we'll talk about that another time. Is that when I say I'm going to do something, you best believe I'm going to do it. And I did, in fact, go with my mother to the flea market. And I walked all over that flea market looking for a star. Looking for a star. My mother's like, can we come on? I'm like, I'm looking for something. She's like, what you looking for? I'm like, I'm looking for something. All over that flea market. And I finally found it. It was like the sky opened up and you get that, and there it was, a star stick pen. And I brought it. And when I saw you the next day, I said, I have something for you. He goes, what? As if he forgot to tell me. And he forgot that he told me to pick him up a star. And I handed him the star stick pen. Yep. And guess what? I had him. I promptly put that sucker in my yes. tangle and he couldn't <laughs> tell me nothing. But you know, one thing I just remembered, uh, you can tell these people, I actually have a real star. A real star? That's right. Okay. You brought me a star. Okay. Up in the sky. I did. I don't remember. You brought me some star. I got some paperwork oh, that that's says. Oh, that's right. I actually so yo folks. Yes. If you, what is that line we have? CBA. If you conceive it, you can believe it, you can achieve it. You are it. so right. She brought me a star in the solar system. Now that's many years later. Yes. But I actually have my own star up there in the galaxy. So now Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, you know, uh, all you rich folks, talk about that, Jack. That's <laughs> right. Because, you know, exactly. And what he said about conceiving it. It was in that moment, though. It was in that moment. That he saw me as he, he saw me this time. He really saw me because this was somebody who actually followed through on what she said. Now, okay, nothing really happened at that moment. He took his star. He put it in his hat right away. He was very happy to get it. But we still wasn't hooked up. We wasn't hooked up yet. And then that following Saturday was the birthday party of one of the oh, ladies. yes. One of the ladies Pat. inside the band, Pat. Yeah, I forgot about that. And this is when I discovered that he's also a DJ. Because he DJed that party. It's Master AJ on the one and twos. Wicka, wicka, wicka. Party, y'all. <laughs> yes. I didn't know he was a DJ and a drummer. Okay. But um, so Pat had her party that Saturday. And him and his cousin, Carl, right? Yep. Were the DJs and they were DJing. We were Quasar Disco Productions. Yeah. He was Hack and I was Pearl. That was our uh, handle. That's right. That's right. And so we went to this party and it was a, a house party, a little apartment party on, on Newman, uh, Street. Newman Street in yeah. Hackensack. Actually, it was on Lehigh. It was on the other no, side. No, it was on Newman Street. It wasn't Lehigh. I thought it was nope. the back side. Nope, it was oh, Newman okay. Street. Okay. Newman Street. Um, so 
we went to the party and he's DJing, doing his thing and everybody's dancing and having a good time. So of course I went into the back room where they were and I, I said, hello, how are you doing? You know, of course now we're friendly because I brought him a star, you know? <laughs> so now we're friendly. And um, so I'm saying, I didn't know you DJed and he's telling me about his DJ and stuff. And now I'm super interested in him now at this point. And it's for real. I really was super interested in him. I wasn't pretending. So then he goes, okay, well, won't you uh, save a dance for me? And I was like, absolutely. When you're ready, put on a song you want to dance to and we can dance. And in the meantime, I went out there and I just started dancing with everybody else. I don't remember the song you played. You don't either? Heck no. Okay. So he put on a song and he comes and he taps me on the shoulder and he says he's ready for our dance. So we dance through that song. And by now, Carl is taking over the DJing. Um, duties. So after we finished um, our dance, he goes, you want to step outside for a minute? I'm like, sure, I want to step outside for a minute. So of course, it's an apartment. So we step outside the apartment and, and her door was right next to the stairs when you I think she was like on the second floor. Mm -hmm. So we sat on the, them damn speakers up the stairs. Yeah, I remember. So we sat on the stairs and we started talking. And that is how we got to know each other. Because we started talking. And you know, I'm the type of person, when you talk to me and you really get engaged with what I'm saying, I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve. So I kind of spill everything about myself because I don't really feel like I need to hide anything. So we had a really, our first conversation was a great conversation. And then, out of nowhere, he said, what did you say, honey? I have no idea. Yes, you know what you said, honey. I don't know what I yes, said. Yes, you do. He says... Can I kiss you? Oh, did I was a yes. Gentleman. He was a gentleman on right, top of all of that. He Swap. was a gentleman. He's like, "Can I kiss you?" And I was like, "Yeah." And so he kissed me. <laughs> that was really cute. That was really really cute. And then we went. Then he says to me, "I'm gonna have to go back inside and start DJing, or else I'm going to get fired." And I'm like, "Okay." So we went back inside. He went back in there and started DJing. And I don't know what happened, but after the party was over. Since it was just basically the, the leftover parts of us, I guess the people who were actually in the band were still there. You know, me, you, Sharon, Pat, and a few other people were kind of lingering on. And he was sitting next to me on the couch and we were still talking. And somewhere along the night, I fell asleep and so did he. We woke up the next morning. Woke up the next morning with a strange woman in my arms. <laughs> <laughs> That's really what happened. I woke up in the, the next morning and realized that we literally had slept together. And when I say it that way, I, I, it's funny when I, I have to say it that way because we were sitting on the couch. His arms was around me. My head was laying on his chest. And I was asleep. He was asleep. And we woke up that way. And then he walked me home. And we basically was together ever since that. Solid. I like that. <laughs> So let's move forward now. That was a long story, but I had to get it all Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the things that, that make you tick. Because we, we started out with the podcast. Uh, we started with, well, we didn't start. We talked about family. Uh, talked about you and I just a little bit here. Yeah. But clearly, the thing that was your passion was writing. Writing was my passion. And uh, I never forget when we uh, moved here to East Orange and we were still in the era of the old typewriter. Mm -hmm. And I finally scraped up enough money and technology had came together. And this thing called a word processor uh, yes. came onto the scene. Yes. Now this ain't, we're, we're laptop tablet friendly now. But back when this thing came out, if you go back to your calculator, and you look at the screen on your calculator, I'm mm -hmm. talking about the little tiny long screen, that's what the screen on this world word processor looked like. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember. But the beauty of the word processor was it held all that stuff inside. You could just type, type, type away, do your edits and everything, none of that, you know, no erase tape, none of that, feeding paper. Uh, it was the beginning of the computer age. And at this point, you had started writing. So yes. what, what drove you to writing like that? Well. As you know, I had always been writing, and I say as you know, because when I met you and we got together, one of the things I learned about you also is that you like to write, because you wrote poetry, I wrote poetry, so we both wrote poetry, 
And speaking of that star again, you wrote a poem called My Star. My Star, and still got it. Yes, yes, and I, I still know it. Um, so I've always wrote, and I think I wrote ever since I was probably like 11, 12 years old, and probably coming from a large uh, family where you don't have a voice, probably is the reason why I started writing, because writing gives you a voice, even if no one hears it. You can get out on paper what you have inside your head. So I just like to write. And let's talk about the uh, inspiration for that first book that you put out, because my favorite line that I have was, I picked the book up, I read it, I read that book literally in like three days, uh, because that was so, uh, you know, just, it just moved me. And I would tell people, like I sleep next to this woman uh, every night, mm-hmm. and I had no idea that she had a book like this inside of her, because I am an avid reader. I love to read. You never see me without my book bag. Uh, so let's talk about that, that first book, uh, Someone to Love. Well, Someone to Love was my first published book, but it wasn't my first attempt at writing a book. It was only the first attempt of me publishing a book and getting it out there. I have several books um, that I wrote that never got published, so we'll talk about um, that. Because, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom for a while, and the reason why I was a stay-at-home mom is because I was in a car accident. It wasn't like I was always a stay-at-home mom because I had worked. Ever since you met me, I was working. But... um. <clears throat> After my car accident, I wasn't able to go back to work because I was severely injured. So you, thank you, husband, allowed me to stay home and recuperate and take care of AJ. So because I was balling with the money, y'all, <laughs> I was just balling. <laughs> That's why we broke today. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I had opportunity, and I think a lot of none of this would have happened without opportunity. So. I have to recognize that I had opportunity, and that opportunity was given to me by you. But I watched the soap operas a lot. And, um, you know, I had been watching the soap operas for a lot of years because my mother watched the soap operas, and I learned how to watch soap operas with my mother. And so as a writer myself, because I was writing poetry and short stories, and I had attempted to write a few other um, stories before Someone to Love, I would sit back and I would watch TV and I would say, oh my God, I know what's going to come next. This is so crazy. I can write this book. And so I decided that I would write this book. So I needed a soap opera type of book. So I decided that I would do that. And I came up with the character, Stephanie. And so I knew Stephanie needed some kind of drama going on in her life. So Stephanie was married to a musician. Of course, my husband was a musician, so I figured I'd just make Terry something like my uh, husband. Stop tape, stop tape. Uh, <laughs> yo, Frank, stop tape, stop tape. This is my disclaimer here right now. Uh, this is AJ Sr., uh, a.k.a. the brother AJ. I am not Terry, nor am I Justin in the book. <laughs> this is my disclaimer as I go on record here. For all of y'all who read, you will know. Uh, and for those of you who do not, shameless plug. Y'all need to go to Amazon and get that book, <laughs> damn it. Go get it. But see, the thing about that, people write about what they know until they get more experience to, you know. A lot of it is fantasy, but, you know, you're going to throw in some things that you know. So I had to write from the framework in which I was. So I tried to use some of the things I knew. So, of course, Terry ended up being a musician. Uh, Stephanie ended up being this unhappy married woman because, you know, when you're married to a musician, it brings a lot of unhappiness into your life. Uh, Go ahead. Say something about that. I'll never see no unhappy housewife (laughs) when she out there balling on Rodeo Drive, buying baguettes and jewelry and all that. So I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. They're all happy. Okay. And so, you know, so I gave gave Stephanie two children, a boy and a girl, which just like me, a boy and a girl. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, you work with what you know. So the framework of the um, story came from stuff that I know. But the story itself began to take shape all by itself. And this is what happens when you are a writer. You can start with an outline. This is what you're going to do. But when you allow your characters to breathe, then they breathe. So a lot of things happened to Stephanie that seemed like the, the natural 
way to go once I started writing it. But it was fun writing about her um, and her many different um, personalities <laughs> and her friends, her girlfriends that she had around her because we have to have our sister girls around us making sure that they're giving us everything that we need. And, of course, you have, to have, you have to have some mystery and you have to have a little bit of naughtiness going on. So, of course, you know, there's Justin. Okay, what else you want to know? And that book was uh, the start of a trilogy. Uh, the second book was? Fragile Heart. And the uh, saga continued? Yes. Um, Fragile Heart was my attempt to get a little bit behind the scenes in Stephanie. It, it told a little bit about what was happening in the background of Stephanie and, and Terry's life to bring them to the forefront. I kind of picked that up from my daughter because my daughter being a psych major and everything, she would always tell me, well, you always got to walk it backwards, walk it backwards because, you know, walk it out. that's right. We're going to walk it backwards walk because it nothing happens in a vacuum. There's a reason for this stuff, folks. So Fragile Heart was my walking it backwards so that you can get a little bit of insight on what was happening with Stephanie and what was happening with Terry and how they got into that place where they were. So that was a lot of fun writing that because it, it made me research. So I had to do a lot of research at that point. It wasn't me going from where I know at that point when I first started with Someone to Love. You're writing from a place in which you know. Now you're writing from a place, not from what you know, but now you're allowing your imagination to take shape and you're allowing the research to come in. And I love that part of it. And the third book in that trilogy, which your fans are still yeah. waiting for with bated breath. Yes, I know. And Marilyn just uh, yelled at me a couple it's of days ago. my birthday twin. What up, MC? Yeah, Marilyn, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. She's just, she, she just had to remind me. She goes, don't let me have to stay on you because I will. And I'm like, please stay on me because um, it's not that I don't want to write it because I am writing it. But I'll explain to you what I explained to her. In the third book, which is the last book, Deception, what I want to accomplish is I want you to see Stephanie's growth. I, if you've read Someone to Love and you read Fragile Heart, then you know Amazon, that. get that, get that. Yes. Then you know that Stephanie went through a whole lot of stuff and she looked like she was weak. But I didn't want to leave my sister girl there because we all go through stuff where it may appear that we are weak. But it's through those things that we go through that strengthens us. And I want Stephanie to be the woman that I envisioned her to be when I started out to write this show, to write this book. And um, I, I, I need her to evolve. And so I want to take my time with the storyline um, where Stephanie is concerned because I want Stephanie to walk away being empowered and right now you know that my whole platform right now is, is women empowerment so Stephanie has to be an empowered woman so I have to take my time as I bring her out of that chaos that she has caused for herself and into a good place where she can be an inspiration um, to other women and that leads perfectly into uh, the plays that you started writing and the one play in specific that is uh the one that is near and dear to me is the one you entitled Women on the Edge. Women on the Edge. A wonderful opening. Uh, we had a beautiful weekend in New York City at the uh, Producers Club. Yes, we did. I uh, had one night of incredible success, and then they shut the place down because we rocked that place so hard. They weren't prepared for what the Joneses was bringing up in that bad boy. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think the Producers Club was ready for the type of play that I brought to them. Um, I worked with the guy. I told him what I was doing. I gave him a script and everything. But I don't think he thought I was going to be able to bring in the people and, and to deliver. I think he was just probably thinking, oh, okay, whatever, whatever. Just give him the high-level concept of Women on the Edge. So Women on the Edge is about, um, I think it was maybe eight, eight um, different women going through different things. And... Um, it was, I don't want to tell everything about it, but it's, it's about eight women going through um, crises or um, either going, either coming out of a break, breakdown or coming into a breakthrough. But um, it, it's about women and it's about what women go through when they're struggling, whether it's with their relationships, um, whether it's um, dealing with domestic violence or um, going over and getting through a divorce so it was it was real it was realism and I had some great women who came in to portray those women 
And um, I, I'm going to give props to the four men that actually helped us pull that play together, yourself included. But um, it was a dynamic play, and I'm actually going to bring it back in 2021 because it'll be 10 years old. And I told everybody, this has to be a 10-year reunion. So I'm actually bringing Women on the Edge back in May of 2021. I will be 60 years old. So Women on the Edge was my 50th birthday present to myself. And the return of Women on the Edge will be my 60th birthday to myself. So y'all heard it here first. Go cop that, cop that ticket, cop that. The book is available, Amazon. Cop that, cop that. <laughs> uh, and, and your love of writing definitely led you down that path from uh, you know writing short stories, writing poetry, uh, writing plays. And a place where you and I crossed paths are, of course, when you wrote song lyrics. Yes. Uh, we had the pleasure of doing a, a, quite a few songs together. And I always say the best songs that we ever did was your lyrics, Married to My Music. Yes. And if you're uh, YouTube, uh, yes, we're a uh, multimedia family, folks. <laughs> uh, we have a couple of clips out there showing some of the things that we've done uh, when we were in our younger days, when we looked, you know, a lot swelter and a lot, but we're more seasoned now. Yes, but, a lot uh, more seasoned. Talk about a little bit of uh, inspiration behind writing some of the songs you wrote. Well, songwriting came actually first before the um, short stories, before the novels. What I loved about songwriting was it gave me an opportunity to actually work with you. And um, those of you who know me know how excited I've always been about being able to um, come together as a family and do work as a family. That's why when I'm working with my daughter, I'm ecstatic. When I'm working with my son, it's the same thing. It started out with me working with, with my husband because I always enjoyed working with the family. My dream was that we would have a family venture and that we would all you know, work together. But getting back to the songwriting, because I knew my husband was a musician, I knew that that would be the one way that we could work together. And it started out with my brother, Jimmy, actually. Because Jimmy also, he used to live with us for a little bit, and he used to write songs. Um, well, he used to get the music together for songs, and he used to say to me, can you put some lyrics on this? So between make, doing lyrics for my husband and doing lyrics for my um, brother, I realized just how much I loved actually being a um, songwriter. So Absolutely. that's where it started. And Jimmy is a huge inspiration to me. I don't think he really knows it, but I have opportunity here on uh the digital medium to say it uh you know he's a hellified bass player he's a multi-instrument but i just think when he picks that bass up and puts it in his hand he just uh becomes another person yep. and uh, he opened some doors for me uh, i wouldn't probably have built my studio uh, in my own home until i really sat with him and, and got to play in bands with him to see the equipment to go to shows and uh, uh just being inspired by him it allowed me to take that thing to a whole nother level to the point when i turned around and passed it down to my son uh he grew up in what to him was normal yeah. and uh, I owe a lot of that to Jimmy because he was a great influence on me so I want to thank you for that brother yeah. and I'll never forget them good days we had yeah Jimmy was a good influence on, on a lot of us in fact my love of music came from Jimmy because when we lived in Teaneck um, they had a band and I used to, even though I was young, like 9, 10, 11 years old, I still used to sit at the top of the stairs and listen to their band. And I always envisioned myself in a band. I want to do what Jimmy does because it was just so wonderful. And then him and his wife, uh, Sharon, they would take me to all of Jimmy's shows. So whenever Jimmy had a show, Sharon would drag me along. She was like my best friend, and she would drag me to every single show. I'm 16 years old. She dragging me to every show. Some of them shows you had to be 18 or over to get in, but I got in. And I enjoyed myself, so that's what really got me on the side of the music. And so songwriting came natural, um, listening to all the different bands and the different um, shows that I went to, and then you getting very interested in music and, and the two of us being young and, and just wanting to, to get out there. So it, it seemed normal to me that I would be sitting in that seat. I actually thought that you and I would be the next up-and-coming Ashford and Simpson. Absolutely. I did. I Problem really was, did. We were blessed with a lot of gifts, but uh, singing on the mic was not the gift that would uh, put people out in the audience that want to pay us. Writing songs and playing songs well, would probably do it better for us. Well, but, they were uh, songwriters also. They wasn't just yeah, singers. But you Nick know? And, and Val could sing. Don't be I fooled. I know Nick and Val could sing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rest in peace, brother Nick. We yes, still miss you, my dog. Rest in peace. Miss you very much. Listen uh, to your music. We all couldn't the time. get out of here without, uh, you know, we're kind of walking this thing through a little bit of a, a timeline. 
And earlier, very early in this conversation, you touched on it, but we're going to expand on it. Uh, you spoke about spirituality. Yes. Uh, those of us, uh, you know, I don't know if I opened up when I said it, but I normally will say uh, greetings, Dr. KBJ, because uh, you're sitting here with a full-on uh, uh, PhD in theology, and uh, you don't do that. If, if this, this spiritual thing doesn't mean something, if it doesn't grab you, if it doesn't pull you in, uh, your, your uh, kinship to spirituality and religion is like my kinship to music. Yeah. So uh, let, let's go. Let, let's go down <laughs> that wormhole. Talk to us. Well, as I say, I thank my mom for that. I'm going to give credit where credit is due because my mother was my first teacher. She taught us and all of her children um, so I shouldn't be the only one sitting here with all this religion stuff. Gary Zordain, yes, yes, Paul can quote yeah. the scriptures. But you know. um, because my mom, my mom was our first teacher. My mother is a very, re I won't call her religious. My mother's very spiritual. And before we get into the difference between religion and spirituality, that'll come later. But there is a difference in my opinion. My mother read the Bible to us um, the way other parents read uh, fairy tales or whatever to their children. We knew the Bible. We knew the Bible very well. I knew the Bible. That was like my first book that I read from cover to, to cover. And I always, always enjoyed the stories. I always believed in the, um, in, in the, um, the theology of it, which is probably why I told you I was always a person who was... Um, who conformed, not so much conformed, but I was um, obedient, I guess you could say. I always believed in obedience. I always believed in, in law and, and let's do the right thing. That uh, My mother taught me that, so I always believed in that. So I always had a love for the Bible, always. And so um, I remember um, just studying, studying. I always studied, and I knew the Bible very, very well. And so because I knew the Bible very well, Obviously, I could teach it to others, and I began to teach it to others, especially other women. I will tell you, and I, I don't want to really bring this up because it, it's like you're putting down the church, and I'm not. But it wasn't, I wasn't able to really um, talk about the Bible in church because when you go to church, you have to listen to the preacher. There ain't no discussing the Bible. It's just you listen to the preacher. And I remember how disappointed I was because I couldn't have full-on conversations about what I was learning on my own. And um, so I, I just started um, doing it on my own and inviting other women to come into my home and we would have Bible study together. But um, someone told me, and I don't even remember who, but it was many, many years ago, says, if you're going to be putting this much time into the Bible, you, you might as well go to school and, and get something out of it. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to um, really um, go into universities and stuff like that because, you know, it gets a little expensive and all that stuff. So I looked for a seminary course, a, a seminary school to go to in which I could just, you know, get my feet wet, learn a little bit, see how, um, uh, what the process was, and um, I found that I really liked it, and it was very interesting because it wasn't just reading the Bible at that point. It was doing what I love to do, which is research. So now I was able to research, and I was able to go deeper, and I was able to find the history behind everything that I was reading, and I began to understand the stories and so much, much better. And so basically I, I took the program, and the program took you from an associate's degree, all the way, if you chose to, a PhD. So I went through the program. I got my um, associate's degree in Bible study, and then I got my bachelor's degree in church ministry. I ended up getting my master's degree in um, theology. And then they give you an option as to whether or not you want to move forward with what you've learned all these years, and if you want to put it in a PhD program. And um, they basically give you a couple of choices. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. And, you know, it took me like five years to get, to get through it. Because, I mean, close to five years. It was like four and a half years to get through it because it's really, it's a lot of research. It's a lot of, of work. But um, I did it and um, I completed it and I got my PhD. 
So that's how that worked. And uh, even prior to all of that happening, uh, you you never stopped that love uh, for spirituality. I've seen you going in and out of different churches. Uh, but more importantly, uh, over the arc of all this time, uh, talk to the folks about S-H-S-I-C. Okay. That would be Sisters Helping Sisters in Christ Ministry. Now, he's right, because I have been doing this for 22 years, 23 years, actually, January to be 23 years. And um, I did this um, ministry work before I even got a single degree, because ministry works doesn't come from you getting degrees. It comes from a calling. And I always felt like I had a calling on my life. I felt like God was speaking to me. I felt like I was called to do this work, and so I did this work. I did this work because I was called to do this work, and, and I knew that I was called to work with women because um, I knew that it was women who needed this information. And Sisters Helping Sisters in Christ Ministry is just that. It's a uniquely different women's ministry um, because it's about... I wonder where we heard that before. Yeah, everything I do is uniquely different. Yeah, that's why. But um, it was an opportunity for women to get together and discuss the Bible, to have conversation about what they were reading, to get an understanding of what they were reading so that they can change their lives. I believe that if a person knows how to do something better than what they're doing, then it's going to cause them to, to, to build their lives up a little bit. And my whole thing was always women's empowerment, always giving women the tools that they needed to change their lives. Because let's think about it. Like my mother being my first teacher, a woman is, is your children's first teacher. And if you don't know this, these things, you're not teaching your children these things. So I felt like by giving you an opportunity to learn and grow, you could do just what my mother did and sit your children down at your knee or talk to your children about um, this biblical stuff and so that they can have a leg up also because that's what I did for Kiana. That's what I did for AJ. It's what I did, you know, even with Isaiah. So I wanted to give back what my mother um, did for me, I wanted to do for other women. So it was even before I even took the trek to, to do the studying, to get the degrees. It was even, it was way before that. The degrees came later after the fact I had already had the ministry going up and running for 10, 12 years before I even started even working toward the degrees. So Sisters Help Sisters in Christ Ministry is still growing strong and I have a wonderful, wonderful executive board and we are still doing the thing. I have online classes now if anybody's interested, so I'm going to give myself a little plug. Please go to our website, which is shsic-ministry.com, and all the information about the ministry is there. You can join our online classes. You can hang out with us and have a good time. And, uh, you know, you're still working. I am. And, you know, we have uh, the funny thing about us is you know, we always say if you could do your passion, you would never work a day in your life. And we've never, we've con continually dipped our toe in the pool, but none of us have ever taken that full-on plunge to let our passion be the thing that sustains us uh, financially. We, uh, we took the safer route, if you will, and, and you know, held on to that, that day job. Yeah. And we exclusively did our love by night and on weekends. So uh, since you have a full-time job and you have a full-time passion, uh, give your listeners a little bit about uh, how do you balance that work-life balance between the two. Work-life balance is very, very important. And I, I can't tell you how important it is, but it is hard for me to leave my passion at home. So because I have such a passion for the ministry, I... I bring it with me everywhere I go. So it's with me on the job as well as not on the job. I'm not saying that that doesn't, um, that that doesn't bring problems at, at some points, but for the most part, everybody knows who I am because I do not try to hide who I am. I'm not a person who you could say, oh, um, she's this by day and she's this by night. I am who I am by day and by night. So if I'm spiritual on the weekends and I'm spiritual at night, I'm spiritual even at my job. So, but um, it is difficult because I have a very stressful job. I work for, I'm a secretary in a high school, a technical high school, a very um, 
you know, high, high, I guess, high learning, I don't know, um, technical school. And um, it's a lot of work. I do a lot of stuff. It, it's not just uh, sitting at a desk and typing. It's a whole lot of stuff that, that comes with that job. And it's very, very stressful. And I will tell you that I have been guilty of losing it a couple of times. And I have to remember who I am because um, I don't ever want anyone to to think differently about the ministry based upon my humanness because sometimes my humanness does show up and um, I do get upset sometimes and I do yell sometimes and I do, you know, say, wait a minute, I've had enough sometimes. And I, I don't want anyone to think that it's any reflection on, on anything. We are human. But um, I do try to have balance. I do try to remember who I am. And in fact, husband, Last year, I um, got a new name, uh, new nameplate that was given to me by a friend of mine, and it says Dr. Caroline Bethia Jones on it, and it's on my desk, and it's on my desk to remind me of who I am, because I don't ever want to forget how far I've come and who this person really is in, in, in the face of a whole lot of stuff, and um, I'm really glad I did that because it's now letting other people know who I am because it's a it's a, a conversation starter because they want to know how I'm a doctor. How are you Dr. Caroline Bedia Jones? And then I'm I'm glad to tell you how I'm a doctor at this point. So work life balance, you really definitely need to make sure that you're meditating and praying and doing everything you need to do to to keep yourself together. Well I was trying to keep this within a nice uh, one-hour segment because, uh, as she alluded to, uh, between the two of us, we could just let the tape roll and we would see y'all in like the year 2092, okay? <laughs> so I just wanted to touch on a few of the themes to just kind of give you an overview because a lot of you out there get to hear her sit in the seat and she's the one that's interviewing uh, all the people that come across her show. This was my opportunity to peel back the curtain and let you get a good look at Dr. Caroline Bethia Jones herself. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to give you a chance to have uh, your final uh, uh, thought. Well, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about myself because I really don't talk about myself with this much detail. I actually chuckled a little bit as I heard myself speaking. But um, I do want to say that I love what I do. I love what I do in every aspect of my life. I love my job, my day job at the high school. I love that job. I love Sisters Helping Sisters in Christ Ministry. I would not give that up for the world. I love working with my husband and with my daughter when, when she goes out on her hikes and when we do our plays, she's right there, my right-hand man. I love everything that I do. And everything I do, I do with love. And I just want you to know that. So I work hard because I want to, not because somebody's making me because I love what I'm doing. I love every aspect of what I'm doing. So please keep listening to Real Talk with Real People because I'm going to keep bringing it, and I hope you're going to keep listening to it. All right. Well, this was the Brother AJ, and as I said, I hijacked her show today. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I really do hope that you got a, a chance to see uh, what I see every day. And uh, I will tell you, uh, I'm very proud of her. I'm, I'm always uh, uh, pushing her. Uh, one thing between her and my son is they don't sell themselves the way that I know they should. Uh, me and my daughter don't have that problem. We are shameless promoters. We know how to promote ourselves. <laughs> and I think this is another way for her platform to, to be uh, out there where you folks can see all the wonderful things she's got her hands in, all the wonderful work she's trying to do. And at the end of the day, uh, if you really listen to her message, it's, it's never about self. It's about helping the next one out there to, to get you to where you're trying to go, to get you to expand your mind, okay? Uh, look at me. All these years later, she has helped me. She's pushed me to mm -hmm. places that I may not have gone on my own. So it's sometimes we need that challenge in our lives to uh, get to that next place. Uh, spoke about her parents, you know. All these years later, still together, still out there grinding after putting 12 kids on the planet. After you put two on the planet, you get tired. <laughs> so you can imagine what 12 is like. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, hey, this is the Brother AJ, and it was my pleasure to, to take this uh, hour out of our day to just have that intimate chat so you can see, hey, we're no different than you. What did she say? It's real talk with real people, and you got two of the realists sitting right here in front of you. All right? Bye-bye. Bye-bye.